All right. Welcome back to the NST and Things podcast. I appreciate y'all sticking with us here. And, uh, you know, we had some technical complications last time. Uh, this is a bit of a new process for myself and lots of learning curves, which is uh, is fun, but also frustrating at times. Uh, so, you know, we're going to build it while we fly it here. And uh, hopefully some changes I've made will help with uh, the video content and things like that and getting the full video uh, uh, this podcast. So um, I would like to start with kind of following up with some things that we talked about last time in regards to uh, uh, prenatal, postnatal care for mothers and babies. Uh, and just kind of go back over some of those uh, common patterns mothers can deal with as far as uh, pain and, and dysfunction as their bodies begin to change, especially if the person has maybe had some uh, some compensation, some, some uh, issues manifesting in the body uh, years before the pregnancy happens. Uh, I know with my, uh, my wife, some of the things that were pre-existing uh, get amplified uh, when the pregnancy is uh, uh, in the process. So um, kind of going through some of the, 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 the tissues and the pain patterns, you know, low back pain, uh, hip pain, obviously, uh, uh, potentially knee pain, upper shoulders, neck pain, things like that are very common patterns um, for mothers, especially when it comes to uh, a pelvic, knee, low back type issues. There's a lot of adjustments occurring there at a very, very early stage. And as the, the womb begins to, to expand with child inside, you know, the pelvis is going to begin to flex more. That's going to increase pressure uh, in lordotic curve and the lumbar spine, adding, you know, more uh, pressure on the SI joint and limiting the body's ability to compensate the way that it used to. Now, as she begins to, to, to progress into pregnancy, um, that flexion is going to intensify as belly begins to expand. So, you know, doing some erector work, uh, back muscle work basically around the spines can be uh, really beneficial, especially early on. Uh, while you have the opportunity to do so, uh, at a certain point, uh, the belly is going to be too big and you won't be able to achieve those positions. So your treatment protocols, in a sense, will kind of will change or will pivot uh, as time goes on. So, you know, those new mothers in the beginning, obviously taking uh, uh, full advantage of the, uh, you know, the newness of the pregnancy, getting their love it reactor, you know, the mechanisms that kind of govern the body to work properly again, getting rid of some dysfunctional patterns so that as their body begins to grow and uh, ligaments and connective tissue begin to soften to allow for this process to occur, uh, the body is able to withstand those changes easier. And then the, the, the changes that come about from that can be addressed if maybe pain patterns or some negative symptoms do begin to arise. So, um, you know, for in, in the beginning, uh, doing some uh, quad work to help with the pelvic flexion, um, doing some low back work in the beginning, again, recognizing those deeper mechanisms in the body that need to be working properly and communicating properly to kind of ease or improve the overall quality of life. Um, those are going to be vital. And then what I found for a lot of mothers is, is the belly does get bigger and that, you know, that the pelvis does begin to flex more and you get more low back compression. Um, I found that, you know, a lot of things can be a contributing factor as far as the spinal muscles and things like that. But, uh, a lot of, uh, QL tightness, quadratus lumborum, or your internal obliques, uh, specifically the internal obliques. Um, interestingly about the obliques, the, as the, 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 the front obliques, the external ones, are being forced to, in a sense, let go. You know, the nervous system knows and the belly knows, the body knows that this tissue has to open up. And in doing so, um, just like if you were to develop more tone in your quad, your hamstring has to try to reciprocate or maybe may downregulate because of that, um, we'll find that those internal obliques begin to, not only do they get 
kind of uh, compressed due to the new, new pelvic position. Um, but they almost begin to pull in more tone from the, the lack of tone that they're feeling from their, their counter group in the front. Um, so, you know, as, as the baby gets bigger and, and the mother can no longer go in her belly, uh, doing sideline treatments where you can still do some quad work, um, you can do a lot of hip work in that position as well too. Um, lateral uh, kind of hip work, gluteus minimus, et cetera, medius, can really help alleviate some of the pressure they're feeling in their back, um, can also alleviate some hip pressure, maybe some things that are manifesting around the knee. Um, and then, it, you know, if, if you really, really were maybe aware of this work before you were pregnant, you could go see a pelvic floor specialist. Um, I know we have uh, some neurosomatic therapists that are geared uh, to doing that or helping with pelvic floor type dysfunction. And I'm a firm believer that if we can clear dysfunction in the body and then go into a, a strengthening process or a stretching process, the results are going to be that much greater. Just because if you begin to ask the body to do things that it's not quite ready to do, you're going to run into some roadblocks and some hiccups, or you might be feeling like your body isn't responding. And sometimes it's because the body's held back in a certain way, maybe from a certain amount of overuse, misuse, trauma, et cetera, uh, that's causing the soft tissue to react. So uh, great things to take into consideration for, for mothers that are receiving treatment. If you are a mother and you're experiencing pain, um, most therapists, I feel like even in my traditional massage therapy training, they, they do tell you a bit about muscle groups and things like that, not to quite the depth uh, that neurosomatic therapy does and, and it's, it's, uh, it's specific kind of detail, but, um, like I had mentioned, you know, low back work in the beginning, some quadricep work, working into the hips, uh, taking advantage of those times where you can still get the mother on her belly. Um, and then once the belly's too big and we can no longer com compress the, the, uh, the child, then we're going to look at, okay, what else can we do? Sideline, et cetera, to help keep mama going. And then after the fact, we're going to do a lot of those same patterns or those same treatment types um, to, in a sense, kind of reverse some of the trauma that the body's gone through. Because it's an event. Um, it's not to be taken lightly. Um, it's, it's rough on mom. It's rough on child. And, uh, you know, I'd previously mentioned there was a, uh, a case study I'd worked on. A mother had uh, two children uh, within about a year and a half. And the first one, she actually felt a lot better. She had some hip, low back type issues going on. And after that one came through, however it reacted to the, the, uh, the tissues around the inside of the pelvis, however her uterus and pelvic floor began to react after the fact, it helped. Um, but unfortunately, when child number two came, it was a different story. And in a sense, uh, the body went from maybe making some positive changes to the second pregnancy was actually more of a trauma. And she had a lot of issues after the fact, and, and not that the pregnancy or getting the child out was traumatic, but just the way things unfolded and maybe the position that the child was in. Um, we did find that, you know, uh, uh, uterine trigger points, um, visceral reflexes. Um, so this is very important for mothers postpartum. Um, and you know, you don't go in immediately. It's almost like, uh, if someone were to get a knee replacement or a hip replacement, you know, you can work around the area, but the body is still in a state of recovery. And from personal experience, um, I had trained for a half marathon at one point and I injured myself and me thinking I was super clever, I went about treating myself the minute I got home, uh, which in hindsight was, <laughs> you would have thought I would have known better, uh, but probably one of the dumbest decisions I've ever made. And so close to the race too, within maybe two or three weeks. And I was put into a state of, my body was in a sympathetic state. It was wanting to perform. It, won it wanted to go and do stuff and create output. 
And at the same time, I wanted to put it into a parasympathetic state. I wanted to get the tissue to let go, release, heal, and cover, recover. But what I've learned through personal experience and even working with a lot of patients is I'll advise for two, three days. I call them active rest days. Um, you can walk. Walking is tremendous. It gives the body variety. That locomotion and movement allows the body to adjust. Um, also, maybe partaking in Pilates or yoga if that's your, if that's your cup of tea. Um, to do things to help the body to, to kind of facilitate the positive changes that we're looking for in that parasympathetic state without telling the body to create all this output. So obviously weightlifting, things like that within those couple of, li- couple of days uh, really isn't advised because it can be too much burden on the body. So just like when mom is recovering, uh, we don't want to push the body too quickly. It has just gone through a big significant event. But after the fact, and, and usually mothers know this, they feel a sense of themselves again. And you can go back out and begin to treat the uterus. You can check some of these, you know, the quadricep muscles, make sure that things are releasing. Because, you know, as the the baby's growing and that pelvis wants to flex, it has to come back to a neutral position as well, you know. And what's going to happen is those, you know, say the quadriceps in particular may not want to let go. Or maybe some of the adductor muscles that create with some of that, uh, contribute to some of that flexion may be stuck. And because they're stuck, they need a little bit of a release. And if we can get them to release... Now, all of a sudden, things start to fall back into order. So it's almost the same way we go into pregnancy. We almost kind of want to back out the same way and make sure that things are uh, letting go of unnecessary contractions. And if there are any compensations, you know, kind of taking place, identifying where those are. And if there is something like a, a uterine trauma that's reflexing into a certain region of the pelvis or into the leg, hip, whatever, and causing it to refacilitate or not relax or, or uh, uh, you know, kind of behave the way that we would wish it to, uh, we got to go back to the drawing board and we maybe got to give the little body a little more time or we got to look back at, you know, okay, what are some internal things that are, that are affected? Um, another thing that's really beneficial and I find this to be more of a problem, uh, after the pregnancy, uh, most mothers are, you know, breastfeeding or maybe they're bottle feeding. If that's the case, regardless, you have to hold the child and hold the bottle. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, flexion, internal rotation in the elbow and shoulder, uh, what that does, and I notice this with my wife a lot, is being those patterns, you know, maybe getting the child in an awkward position out of the crib at night, you know, to lay next to you to feed sort of a thing, um, can add a lot of shoulder and neck tension. That can then be amplified by, uh, I'll say, the overuse of uh, your biceps or your biceps getting, uh, in a sense, stuck uh, because you're, you're holding baby, you're doing things like that, and basically the bicep is creating an anchor point for the shoulder. And in doing so, it's lengthening, you know, tissues in the top of the neck, which cause problems. It can cause headaches, migraines, um, obviously chronic shoulder pain. Uh, when most people feel like they have a knot in their shoulder, it's not necessarily their trapezius. Uh, it's usually their levator. And if their levator is active, you really have to question what's happening in the limb. And then at the same time, go up, go north, and look at what's happening at the base of the skull. Because if you have compensations there, now you're adding neurological pressure to the whole equation. And I know for my wife, when her headaches would begin, typically, I mean, yeah, I might find some stuff in the neck, but a lot of it was originating in the arms. And it was due to the fact of holding the children. And and even if you're, you know, uh, uh, taking care of the child, dad's included, holding them, walking around the house, again, you're creating an anchor point because there's a certain amount of overuse that your body isn't conditioned to. Uh, And once those, those compensations, those adjustments begin to take place, you're kind of stuck uh, and it'll continue to take and your body of course if it gets a variety can work itself out of it the problem is the consistency of the pattern uh, can establish what we call fixation and those fixations can lead to long-term problems 
pardon me. And um, it's just something we want to address. So, uh, you know, after the child's come out and everything, um, uh, uh, you know, obviously taking care of any sort of pelvic floor trauma, but then almost kind of redirecting your attentions and, and, and kind of, if you can, quickly rectify what was happening in the lower extremities because now they're going to feel a lot more upper body stuff. And I know for my wife, uh, she endured, well, I'll just say she felt weak. You know, she was carrying twins. Uh, she was getting Braxton Hicks throughout the entire uh, pregnancy, more or less. Uh, she continued to, you know, I'll say diminish her work activities or lessen her workload. And, you know, that helps and all. But at the same time, she couldn't go physically exercise. You know, I see some mothers out there still doing CrossFit and their waters are breaking. I mean, it's 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 incredible that they're even able to go out there and do that. Um, but it's not something all mothers can do. And what you end up with is you end up with kind of muscular deficiencies. Um, so although there may be uh, a certain amount of trauma, overuse, misuse, things like that, and the body's making all these adjustments to then follow up with some type of, you know, pelvic floor PT or just physical therapy uh, or, or personal training in general, I would tend to lean towards more of a, a physical therapist just because I feel like they're a little more qualified in the sense that they, they're looking for range of motion patterns and things like that. Um, and there's just a, you know, it's a heavier education process. It, you have to be willing to stick to it and really be diligent. Um, you know, my personal training cert, I kind of use, I guess. Um, but it's not something that, you know, I, I really put up on a pedestal. And if I were to have a choice, uh, which we did with my wife, um, I had her seek out a local uh, pelvic floor PT and um, she did great. You know, she gave her exercises that she could do that could not only help uh, retonify her pelvic floor to create support, um, address certain patterns like butt tucking. I'm sure many women are aware of this where you'll tuck your hips and, you know, you're kind of like holding the baby up in an awkward position. Well, what happens is your, your glutes aren't firing properly. You're, you're ruining curvature in your spine. And there's this, this whole domino effect that begins to take place. So, uh, just being mindful of these things. Uh, and then, you know, kind of segueing here into, to children, <laughs> obviously it's, it's hard to put a child through PT. Uh, I've heard of it with torticollis and things like that, but for children, you, they're ever changing. Um, so you really want to kind of do a little bit of, of everything and because they're ever changing and because it really doesn't, it doesn't matter if you come out, you know, C-section or vaginally, I think I'd mentioned, mentioned in the previous episode that we used to think it was only C-sections that had issues. And I'll tell you watching my boys come in cause my daughter was born in a tub at home. Um, I didn't get to see it. I participated, but I didn't get to visually see it, but to see my boys come out, uh, there's a tremendous amount of cranial compression, and this is why, you know, all the bones are green-sticked and, and they're not solidified, uh, and the cranial structures can push together. And, and basically, your body or the child's body is, in a sense, expanding, kind of like those little foam sponges you used to pour water on as a kid, and their, their body's opening up. Well, as it continues to open up outside of the womb, we want to continue to go back and address things. We want to make sure, you know, the head is in proper alignment. There's no cervical pressure. If the child does have uh, a colic or, or a reflux type issue or a torticollis, um, they can be resolved. And usually if they're identified early on, you can get on a protocol, you can get with a PT, you get with a neurosomatic therapist, and they can go about treating certain things. And I will say there's a, a, a separate case study that I'd worked with young girl, she, uh, it was having terrible reflux issues. She needed a certain type of formula. 
Uh, and it was just kind of was what it was. You couldn't really do anything about it. Um, I'm sure there's thickening agents and things like that that maybe some people not, might not want in their, their child's diet, but it is what it is. You have to do what you got to do to get the nutrients into the child. But what we were able to help with um, was reducing her torticollis. Her sleep patterns improved, um, especially when she started getting better formula and things like that. Um, but the torticollis, I want to say within, oh, maybe three 20-minute appointments, uh, it was gone. And the parents noticed a significant difference because when the child doesn't look a certain way, you know, mom and dad start to pick up on that. And when these, uh, uh, I'll say subtle changes begin to take place, it's like, oh, wow, that's great. And, you know, just kind of getting a jump on these things when they're, when they're early. I know my boys, uh, they are a rowdy bunch. Uh, we're at about 20, 21 months now and they are crawling out of cribs. They are hitting each other. <laughs> they're abusing each other. They wrestle, they bite, they fight. Um, they love each other, all those great things. But I will tell you every month now we have a family treatment day and when they come in, uh, they always, always have head traumas or not head traumas, but, um, cranial distortions. So <laughs> costs from head traumas. So, you know, say they, they bump their head on a table or something like that, or their brother hits them with a truck and they get a little knot or they get a little, you know, a little scratch, something like that. Uh, I, as a therapist, will try to make a mental note of those things. Uh, but even, even as a parent, uh, if you are not a neurosomatic therapist, keep these things in mind. And even if they, they seem insignificant, or sometimes they are a significant event, and they are very scary. Um, and even though the child is maybe okay after a bad fall, we had a friend of ours come in who uh, uh, one of her little boys had taken two really bad falls on tile floors and um, complete accidents, but it's one of those things that it can happen. And when it does, you know, they notice some changes, but, but what do you do as a parent with no knowledge? You know, you just you kind of wait around and you just watch and wait. And there's a lot of watching and waiting going around because there isn't proper education. Um, but, you know, when I got up my hands on those kids or that, that one little boy, he had such tremendous cranial pressure. Um, you know, that day, that later afternoon, his appetite got better. He was sleeping better. Uh, it took a long, long nap. And again, that's the body when it's under these neurological loads. When we can alleviate that pressure, we go from that sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state. And the body wants to rest and digest. It wants to heal. It wants to take care of these things. Problem is, most of the time, whether adult, child, baby lays down, some of those cranial compressions, if they've endured head traumas, tailbone traumas, so again, falling on the butt, or your butt can be a big issue, um, those will reciprocate to either end. So if you have a head trauma, um, you, you know, my boys, I can measure their hips and things like that, but they're always, they're always changing. It's always evolving. Um, so what I found is a, a, a kind of a good, uh, good protocol, good stance to take is, is appreciate that everything's always going to be changing. Everything's always going to be moving. And really your job is to keep things open, to keep things moving, to keep things um, able to compensate. So when something does happen, the body has that margin compared to if you have no margin and your body's used up the compensatory mechanisms that it has, it can no longer govern properly. When so something when, when something does happen, you end up in a bind. <clears throat> and now you have these, you know, really extreme symptoms. Or for adults, I always use the analogy of, you know, your back going out. Uh, I think everyone can agree when they hear a story of someone's back going out that it wasn't bending down to pick up the sock that caused their back to go out. Um, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Straw was, or the camel was carrying a bunch of other stuff. And if your body had 
enough margin, when those things happen, it can adjust. And now you aren't in this this kind of devastated state where now it seems like you need, you know, the, the brigade to come out and take care of you to, to get you back on, on course. And it's just because some of these things will, I'll use the term erode over time, and not that they're breaking down, but they're, uh, the ability for them to function properly is limited because of what the body's already dealt with, because of some of the other traumas that the body's gone through, and it's used that margin. And in a sense, it's writing IOUs out the window, and you don't see them flying out the back. It's just doing it uh, because your body's based in survival. You know, things you're being chased by bears in the woods, and it doesn't matter if you're one year old or 90. It's behaving the same way. It's, it's based in a survival. It's not based on quality of life. We're kind of responsible for the quality of life. Um, so if we can respect the laws that govern the body, go about correcting those laws, we can get mothers, children's fathers, athletes alike into a much better place so that when they do encounter something, their body can actually handle it instead of always falling into a deficit and either making their life miserable or putting them on a month, months long or years long journey of trying to resolve something. And it's astonishing to me, uh, after 10 years, how simple some of these techniques, mechanisms, and things like that are, how simple it is to get the body to start working properly and just, you know, why it hasn't been shared, why it's not out there. I, I don't understand. Well, I kind of understand, but we're not going to get into that today. Um, so yeah, looking at, uh, and this is something else I'll mention with, uh, child treatments and stuff. You know, one of my boys was head down, feet up, kicking his brother in the face early on. The other one was arched in a U shape. And what was interesting about the one that was in the U shape was there was even in the womb as the body's forming, there began, the body began, his body began to acquire concentric contractions and eccentric contractions. And what I mean by that is as his, his body was bowing, one of his hip joints was stuck in an eccentric position because it's being forced to stretch, which adds a lot of tone, stretching contractions. The body doesn't like, uh, it'll do it, but it, it's one of those things where you're asking it to do two functions simultaneously. Um, so it almost creates a greater burden than say the concentric side, concentric sides usually, and this would be the other hip for him, uh, would be say the bottom of the U, you know, where the hip is almost kind of wedging into, uh, uh, the femur itself. Whereas on the other side, the hip and the femur are being pulled apart. Interestingly, when I had done some treatments with him, I was noticing his gait was a little off and mind you, you know, he was a year, 14 months at the time when they started walking. So they're not going to be great on their feet, right? They're not going to be world-class sprinters or anything, but he almost had a sense of like he had vertigo. And to me, having worked on his head, I knew the upper part of his body was governing itself the way that it should be, but it made me question what was coming, what was feeding back up through the system. And almost in like a Hail Mary pass just to see if it worked, uh, I checked his hips, you know, treated them and things like that. And basically the one hip decompressed immediately. Uh, I, it was an audible like you know, it went back it, I don't want to say it went back in, but there was pressure on the joint improperly. And when that pressure was alleviated, the joint reset to the, the neutral position that it should have been in the first place. Now it does make me wonder, and, uh, 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 to follow up the next day, the other hip did, uh, now I didn't do any work on it the next day. It was just a matter of it settling and your body, uh, again, kind of going through the process of that parasympathetic aesthetic parasympathetic state of it making these adjustments that the next day that one decompressed as well. And I was like, wow, 
Uh, this is incredible. And ever since then, he's he's walked great. He's ran great. He no longer seems like he has the vertigo type stuff. Um, if he does have any sort of asymmetries and stuff like that, it's usually from his brother trying to beat him up. Um, but other than that, it was it was really eye opening for me because it was the first time. Other than, you know, you'll hear uh, babies are in like a full flexion type position in the body. Right. So you could you could take the easy road and go, oh, well, you know, what are the flexors? And, and I'll work on those to help the body kind of open up again. Right. That that kind of water on the sponge analogy is is getting the body to open up now that it's outside of the womb. Um, for Elijah, I was just like, well, you know, he's in this weird position. There has to be pressure there. Like it can't just start outside of the womb. Like it has to, it has to start at some point and why not in the womb? So, uh, yeah, that was just kind of a little experiment, but it really, it, it, it told me a lot because obviously there's less room, room in the womb for twins, uh, compared to a singleton. But regardless, if your baby is in a weird position, um, you can take that as a, an indication that certain things may be tight. So if their neck is maybe pinched against their shoulder, um, understand that, you know, things might be stuck on that side and things on the other side might be agitated or more irritated because of that. Um, and, and with that being said, uh, you know, I have a, a friend right now who's, uh, her baby's about to come and the baby is in such a way that when she kicks or pushes her head, just kind of pal drives into, um, the inside of the hip which there's a muscle in there called your iliacus, uh, creates a little obliquity, a little inflare uh, in the pelvis, but it also kind of merges with your psoas, which is a, uh, a compensator for pelvic flexion, low back pain, uh, oftentimes known as like the hidden low back pain muscle because it's internal, you can't necessarily see it, but it creates flexion and it creates compression and can bind up the SI joint. So uh, I know, and I already have notes on this, that when I see her after the child comes, uh, and things are, I'll say, healed up enough inside where we can we can work because I don't know if she's going to have to have a C-section or if, how things will go. Um, but when that day comes, we're going to be checking that area. Why? Because baby's been headbutting it the whole time she's been in the womb. So little things like that taken into consideration. If you do have the ultrasound pictures and get, can get enough of, you know, kind of the position of the uterus and where the child's lying, I think all that is is a tremendous help in understanding kind of what the body's doing um, how it's dealing with, um, maybe certain dysfunctional patterns it was acquiring in the womb. Um, and it, it's never, a, a, a cookie cutter. It's always this way sort of a thing. It's just something that you make a note of and you want to come back to, and you want to check again in the future. Um, now when it comes to that, when it comes to, uh, to children and, and reassessing them, like I say, I got my boys on like a month schedule. Um, and it's just, it's more convenient for me to make them, well, it's a little bit of an outing, you know, they come here, we have lunch. It's great. Um, but it's, it gives me a consistent base of what they're doing every month, making notations of maybe what happened that month and seeing patterns. So one thing I'll recommend to my patients is, um, if, if you have, oh, I'm sure any uh, phone has it nowadays, but you usually have a notes application. I say, make me some Casey notes <clears throat> and every day, AM and PM, I want to know what's happening. Now, obviously you don't need to do that for your child every day, but if little Johnny falls off the, the coffee table and cracks his head and he's fine, but it knots up, you better expect that swelling is going to create some cranial distortions. Um, and typically what I found from, uh, uh, from swelling is you'll find that the, uh, the bones almost kind of push away from that area. So that it'll actually create compression on the opposite side of the head, 
uh, but making notations of things like that. So if you were to come see a therapist like myself or go seek out a PT or uh, a chiropractor, whomever does child type treatments and said, hey, this day this happened, this day this happened, this day this happened, and maybe you've seen this, this information, you can share with them a little bit about that or they may know uh, what to kind of do. And you just providing that extra information can help guide them uh, in the right direction so that they, uh, uh, they have a little more information and they have a little more guidance and they're not just trying to, they're, uh, I don't want to say killing time or wasting time, but trying to sort through the muck of it all to figure out what's actually happening. If they know certain events have happened in certain areas, they're going to look at those areas. Uh, so I know on my patient intake form, when I see new patients, I have one coming in today, uh, we're going to talk about jaw issues. We're going to talk about head traumas. We're going to talk about car accidents. And we're definitely going to talk about tailbone traumas, uh, especially in women, gymnastics, cheerleading, uh, uh, acrobatic type movements. Uh, it's not uncommon to land on your head, neck, tailbone. And those issues we'll find will perpetuate. And these, this, this dysregulation that occurs in the body can begin as a functional problem and later on become a structural problem. And those structural problems in later in life are a little bit more of a pain to deal with. You know, you got to do a little more effort compared to when they're young, you in a sense reset their system and look to see how it's correcting and create your correct asymmetries while they're young so that hopefully, potentially, when they're an adult, they're not carrying these patterns into life. Um, now, obviously, this takes some mindfulness and stuff on the, on the behalf of the parents. Um, so if you do come across the content, please share with other parents. Um, speak with them. Um, um, you know, consult with some other people if you know people that do child work or prenatal, postnatal work for, for mothers and children. And, and ask, their, ask them questions. But again, having good documentation, knowing what's happening with your baby, um, it's tremendous. It really does make a difference. All right. Sorry for the uh, the complications there. Uh, as I'd mentioned previously, uh, we are building it as we fly it, folks. I uh, had a little bit of a memory storage issue with the last one, uh, so uh, uh, please, uh, you know, stay tuned for um, the full podcast. What I'm going to do is try to edit it in uh, in such a way where we'll get some some video and audio, and then it's going to switch to audio and then go back again. So hopefully, you're sticking with me here. I uh, just wanted to kind of finish up <clears throat> what I was speaking on last time in regards to um, uh, my boys and head traumas and, and proper documentation. Uh, interestingly, we had uh, some patients come in uh, just this week, and <laughs> again, one of my boys uh, injured themselves again this week, and uh, just wanted to kind of drive home that point about documentation and how some of these, these things that happen in life um, can impact us, and that they do hold some weight. You know, when someone comes in, uh, even in their later years, you know, whether they be 40, 50, 60 years old, um, you know, one of my boys, uh, like I'd mentioned, uh, you know, they get a little rough and uh, wanted taking a tumble off the couch uh, again. And again, just making notations that these these traumas, whether they be big or small, um, hopefully mostly minor. Um, but they need to be documented and they do hold some weight and they can help, uh, like I'd previously mentioned with, um, if you do see a practitioner that, uh, can help you with some of these things or is a neurosomatic therapist and can help treat, um, knowing these things happened, having a little more insight as to maybe, you know, how they fell and things like that, which isn't always, uh, obvious, nor is it always caught, uh, visually. So, uh, just do your best. Um, I'll let that lead into a patient I'd seen this week. 
she had come in with a, a significant shoulder pain. And I mean, I could tell when she came in immediately, you know, the shoulder was very rounded and, and you could see she had issues going on. And if you were to see her walking down the street and, and you had to guess if she had, you know, pain somewhere in her body, you'd go, eh, something doesn't quite look, look quite right on that right side. And interestingly, as we were, we were conversing and, and going through her intake form and it, it kind of uh, figuring out exactly what she had going on and what we needed to do to help her, um, we had done our assessment and measurements and everything. And when we looked at those cranial structures, uh, I got to, I got to say, you know, typically when it comes to cranial compression and things like that, um, you know, there's kind of a, a, a you know, uh, I'll say a set number, a limitation of, of the amount of distortions you can have. And, and obviously I think that can, that can be expanded upon, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, other compression around the, uh, the brainstem and not just within the cranium itself. Um, but she was noticing, or had reflected back uh, when we were asking about tailbone traumas and head traumas that she did have a significant head trauma um, when she was about nine years old being on a swing and, uh, you know, swung a little too hard and maybe wasn't paying attention. Not sure exactly what happened, uh, but she fell and cracked her head significantly. Now, as, as most kids oftentimes do, um, they may feel like uh, maybe what they were doing, they weren't supposed to be doing, so they're not going to share it with mom or dad. Um, I don't know if her situation was necessarily, you know, bad enough to warrant a hospital visit. Um, but regardless, uh, we can't go back in time. We can't see, was it the chicken or the egg? Um, but we want to try to figure out, okay, that does hold some weight. So if we're, if we're looking at trying to correct an issue, um, we just don't leave things out. Uh, the body is, is connected entirely. Uh, we don't discount one region just because they have a, 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 an issue over in another region of the body. So when someone does come in with a shoulder issue, and I will say this is probably one of the most difficult things for new therapists and practitioners to deal with. Um, and I understand the frustration on the patient's part and on the therapist's part, but your, you come in for one issue and it seems like we're, we want to store up, uh, stir, up, uh, stir up the hornet's nest. And if you're doing a good job, typically that doesn't happen. Um, but we do need to treat the body as a unit and not compartmentalize it. Uh, I think everyone can agree that that's a lot of the issues that we see with modern medicine is everything is so compartmentalized that there ends up being too many cooks in the kitchen and they're not communicating. Information isn't shared. This guy only has one tool. This guy only has one tool. This guy only has one tool. And it's just, you know, we, we kind of end up treading water. We don't really make progress where we should. Um, so as painful as it may be, uh, as a therapist, uh, to try to convey this message or to, um, you know, want to retain a patient in the sense that you want to help them, uh, not take advantage of them, but like, hey, this is going to be a little bit of a journey. And thankfully, uh, through the years, I've gotten better at communicating and explaining things to people. And when patients do come in with these issues, it is a matter of, hey, these things are present, but these things also need to be addressed. And the reason we're doing this, and then you go into your explanation of, of how we're trying to create uh, a foundation uh, that they can, we can build off of, uh, you know, something made of, of rock, something that's solid, uh, not something where we cause corrections and then you, you leave and, you know, you, you know, you, uh, I don't know, walk down the hallway, you get in your car and it regresses. I mean, I, I can't tell you the, the frustration I've had hearing practitioners or uh, patients that have worked for practitioners, office staff and things like that. And, you know, uh, the, they'll make a mention that, you know, when Susie walks out to her car and she, she moves her neck a certain way, 
oh, well, the, you know, the adjustment just went away. Well, first off, if we're building glass houses, maybe you should check, check a different profession. Um, minor things like that, if doing the work properly, shouldn't completely destabilize. I've seen patients one or two times and they've come back, you know, a year later and many of the corrections that we made stayed. And again, it's because we're, we're, we're getting these mechanisms that are God given to regulate properly. Um, to, to start working properly. And that's why it's significant to explain this to people that when you are going through a treatment protocol, hey, I know you have a toe issue, but we're going to work on your head. And I know it doesn't make sense now, but as you begin to feel things shift and change, you're going to begin to, to kind of gain that awareness of like, oh, wow, these things are connected. And, and sometimes it, it just takes a little bit of that contrast. I often uh, will tell patients, you know, you typically will feel yourself getting worse and worse throughout time. You never feel the contrast of going the opposite way. Typically, the course of, of a pain, we'll say in someone's lifetime, is I was at a five and I'm a six and five years later, I'm at a seven and we keep having this dynamic occur. And really, <laughs> nothing has really intervened uh, to break the patterns enough to get the body to, to try to correct differently. Um, or to get back on track with the track with the way that it wants to behave, it's always butting heads because you're you're just addressing the muscles in the shoulder and you're not addressing these other uh, mechanisms. Pardon me, that keep the body actually working properly. So, um, just as you develop your skills um, as a practitioner in any way, uh, you also want to be able to develop the, the communication that you can convey a good message. Uh, I heard it said once that you don't really understand things unless you can explain it to a child or to the simplicity of, of an orange, you know, to, to break it down to this very basic, basic idea. And you do have to speak to people in a childlike manner sometimes because the paradigm that you operate in and, and the thought process that, and I, I fall into this too, um, that you work in it can be really overwhelming. And there's a lot of terminology that people don't follow. So you have to be able to develop yourself in such a way that you can begin to break these things down and communicate it. And it really helps when you're working with practitioners because they're in their paradigm, you're in your paradigm, and there is some common ground. You just have to figure out what it is. And and typically the way that we look at things, we may be seeing the, th the same thing, but we're interpreting it through a different lens. And one thing I'll mention uh, in regards to like physical therapy is the biggest thing I see is, is weakness being misinterpreted um, as weakness when it's really inhibition. Uh, the body is down regulating because it can't give you more. And if it were to, it's going to cause more detriment and your body's made for survival. So it's not going to do that. Um, so being able to convey, convey a good message, uh, communicate well, break things down uh, so that you can explain them in a very simple manner and don't overcomplicate it, um, like get to work you know, tell them what you need to tell them and then go about creating that contrast because the minute they feel, wow, I haven't actually felt my five go to a three and now I'm at a three. Typically I'm in that five, six, seven, and I'm just kind of expecting the rest of my life to be terrible. The minute you create that contrast, you open a door for education. And now people are going to be more receptive to what you say. They're going to be more responsive there. They will want to know more. Um, and in turn, they also begin to, to gain a better awareness of their bachelor bodies. They begin to figure out, oh, I slept wrong and I feel bad today. They just don't roll out of bed and go, oh, I feel bad today. Like there's a reason, you know, things just don't happen. Your body's not trying to, to sabotage you. If anything, it's trying to keep you from the bears in the woods. Um, but I will say this, your body doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't really care about your quality of life. Um, it will give you a better quality of life if these mechanisms are addressed and if they're corrected properly. But if they're not, you kind of end up stuck. 
and you end up in this, this floundering state where things just seem like they keep getting worse. And in a sense, they will, because your body is, is bound up. It's lost that margin. It can no longer do or move things the way that it, it desires to. So it's like, all right, we're going to work with what we got. And oftentimes it'll dig itself a deeper hole. Why? Because you keep asking it to do things and it's going to keep showing up for you. Uh, problem is people can do that their whole lives. And, you know, it's almost coincidental that by the age of 50, on average, people start having a lot of issues <clears throat> or issues that happen in college or high school begin to re-manifest. Well, that can just be because the body isn't, it's never really worked out of it. You know, you injured your shoulder and you rested it for two weeks and it felt better. Well, by all means, do not think that that, that injury went away. Your body compensated. It made an adjustment so you could keep living life. And I'll, I'll say this early on in my career, that was a big frustration I had is I'd reach out to someone maybe for a follow-up or whatever the case may be. And, and sometimes, you know, you hit the nail on the head the first time and someone's well after that first visit, but they almost do an injustice to themselves because again, those foundational things that we need to get on track to keep you in a better position may not have fully been addressed. Um, you, they may still be a bit of a work in progress. And, and being a practitioner, that's just something you got to kind of roll with. Um, it's their life. It's their journey. Uh, I tell all my patients, you know, I'm willing to walk alongside of you and I'll, I'll sit in the suck of it with you. But uh, if we got to sit in it, then we're going to sit in it. And if we got to walk through it, then we're going to walk through it. Um, but if you're willing to do it, I'll walk with you. Um, so it's, uh, you know, just something after the, the last uh, video had cut out, uh, I'd come across some patients and I was like, wow, this is, this is really along the same lines of things that I was talking about on, uh, the first recording. And I just felt like I needed to kind of lay into those a little bit. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting. Um, and it has been a journey, but I will say that, you know, continuing to educate, continuing to, um, help others and creating those contrasts, um, is tremendous. Because the minute they know more, uh, again, you know, they share more. And if they're talking with people, you know, words getting out and it's not words just getting out that maybe you do good work, but words getting out that we can do better, you know, we can get better. Um, and it's not just you and, you know, I'll, I'll refer people out if I need to sort of a thing, but to know that there's a contrast there, there's a, an opportunity to get better and to provide that to someone you shift their paradigm. And for me, that was really when I was introduced to NST, what I experienced because I was in the, the throes of, of Crohn's disease. And, um, I, you know, the first time I, I say I got a taste, it was, it was incredible. I mean, the first time I, it wasn't induced by drugs or, you know, whatever. And it was better, like things changed. And again, that contrast provided so much hope. And I see so many people, especially segue into like autoimmune conditions, that are in an autoimmune type state and they just can't get their head around it. And they're then unfortunately, sometimes they get uh, in the throes of medicine and you know, the, uh, the, the autoimmune injections and the steroid injections and all these sorts of things. Um, and actually just had a gentleman come in, uh, mentioning this, uh, uh, uh the other day I've been treating his, uh, his spouse and he said, you know, Hey, he goes, I actually have a ulcerative colitis and was explaining to me what he was taking and, and was really just looking like, hey, I've seen her get so much better. Like, is there hope for me? Well, thankfully, I fought my giant and won. So I know what it's like to go through the motions. And I didn't necessarily have myself helping me along the whole way. Uh, I mean, I would work on myself, do some self-therapy, but 
I didn't necessarily have a therapist that I went to all the time. A lot of times I would just maybe barter, you know, trade with uh, another therapist in the office when I was early on. But again, it's, it's, it's hard when you're a practitioner because you're, you have to provide a living for yourself. You're trying to take care of your patients. And there isn't always that time to try to, you know, share and work on each other. But I will say that even the self-therapy that I did um, really provided that contrast to where it instilled some hope. And now I wasn't in this downward spiral. And so many people are in that downward spiral, whereas if you can just get a little inspiration, a little hope, man, it can make a world of difference. So um, leaving with that, I will say I think the the uh, this isn't a, a, a conversation I really get into a whole lot. Um, for me, it's been probably about 10 years uh, since I was uh, diagnosed with Crohn's, at, at maybe 11 years now since the diagnosis. And <clears throat> I don't have issues, um, but I think it will hold some weight, and I think it helps people understand uh, my journey, their journey, and what the body's capable of um, a little bit better when they have more details. So uh, I'm going to take some time and uh, put together uh, the next episode and really just tell my story and my journey. Um, it's pretty incredible. Um, it is... <laughs> very telling of the current medical situation of what we have options for and what we're given uh, as resources. And um, it's really a story of, of hope and just not giving up. I mean, being relentless. And, and mind you, uh, and I try to tell this to my patients as well, when I started, um, you know, they're seeing me in this developed version. I was not this individual when I got my diagnosis. But that didn't stop me. A lack of education, a lack of, of, of a doctorate or anything like that was not going to keep me from getting well. And one of the first decisions I made was to cut my doctor loose and basically put myself back as the authority um, and making those good decisions, making good judgment calls, assessing myself, assessing my environment what I was putting in my body and all things under that umbrella. So uh, I will uh, be working on that here. Um, we'll have a, a little bit of a family vacation, which is much needed. Um, so hopefully when I come back in July, uh, we'll be recording again. This will be out for your enjoyment and uh, uh, we'll get into the autoimmune type conditions. And I think it'll be very telling because I don't think what most people understand is when you have an autoimmune type issue going on, we have this very blanketed umbrella term and then we have all these kind of subcategories as to how your symptoms are manifesting, whether it be, you know, thyroid, Crohn's, gut, colon, et cetera. And, and really, they're all the same, uh, maybe not in how they're manifesting, but this, this, this problem within the body is being cultivated and the, the, the system is, in a sense, destabilized. So we'll be segueing into that next time. Uh, I greatly appreciate everyone who's been sticking in there with me. Um, hopefully <laughs> the next one will go much smoother. Uh, no promises, no promises, but, uh, hopefully it will. And, um, uh, please, please, please like share, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, this is being on, uh, shown on YouTube. Now, uh, you can find us at NST and things podcast. Um, you can also find us on, uh, the Apple app, uh, and anywhere else you can find uh, podcasts. So, um, Please like and share, follow us, uh, and if you have questions, please don't hesitate to ask or if there's maybe something that you want uh, to know more about, uh, I'd love to educate people. So if, uh, you know, even if you're just a stranger on the street, uh, I don't mind having that conversation to enlighten you on, on your situation and what may be problematic factors. Um, so yeah, definitely send in any questions and uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs>